0: I know, it feels like it's been forever, right? You know, on that note, um, I just want to say thank you uh, to all of you, really, but uh, Alex filling in and preaching two weeks in a row, which is officially his third and fourth messages ever, right? Jacob jumping in, leading worship. They show up today. Alex is slotted back behind the guitar where he belongs, all is well, and he loses his voice, right? And so Jacob and Kylia, they're back filling in. And so, just we say church isn't about us, it really isn't about us, right? That, that we have a, a church that will rally around whatever. And so, Pastor Maudy, Pastor John filling in, the team, the staff covering. So, being out, been out this seventh priest for four weeks. And so, in four years of COVID, Lisa and I never got COVID. And then we got it back-to-back times over the last three and a half weeks. And so that was fun, just for the record. We were trying to make up for lost time. So, hey, we just sang these words. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Do we believe it? I mean, like, do we believe it at every level, right, that that Christ is solid. On Christ, the solid rock, I say, on the gospel, on the work of Jesus, that's what we stand on. Everything else, and I mean everything else, is sinking sand. I don't know what made me do it. I saw something on TV, and I, and I YouTubed, um, was it quicksand? You hear about it in movies. I've never seen it. And so, I saw this, like people just like, and things just, you know, kind of disappear into the sand. And When I heard that, I just remember all other ground is saying, it'll eat you up, right? Nothing else we stand on but Christ. We sing it. Do we truly believe it? And that actually fits into what we're talking about today. So a couple things. First Corinthians chapter 1, if you would turn there. For sure, you'll need a Bible. If you need one, there's one on the chairs in front of you. If you've got one from the chairs in front of you, I'll give you the cheat. It's on page 952. We've been working our way over the summer. We did a series through the Minor Prophets. One Sunday, one Minor Prophet, right? Just a summary, an overview of the book. And what that means is you can't catch every nuance, right? You can't exegete or deep dive every word or every verse. You've got to go with what is the main message of the book, the prophet, or the main message of God to those people at that time, Right? And a couple of them are hard. Daniel's got some different messages. Zechariah, they're, they're a little longer. But when you get to some of these minor prophets, they have one main idea. And one of the benefits of doing that is we walk away and we know, okay, like Malachi's talking to the people about their worship practices, that the way they're worshiping is at convenient at best, corrupt at worst and that God will not accept anything except what he has prescribed for worship, right? That Hosea, that, that the people of God are like an unfaithful wife who cheats on God, right? Like you, you get these overarching messages, and so 1 Corinthians is written by Paul, probably the, the most famous first century leader, second only to Jesus, right, in, in, in Christianity, and he has a relationship with this church. He began the church in Corinth. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Spends a little time there, leads some people to faith, kind of puts together a church, hands off to some local elders, moves on. He ends up in Ephesus for three years. You can read about that in Acts 18, 19, 20, where he hands off to the elders. By the way, pastor goal. Paul literally causes a riot in Ephesus. Because the city is losing money on people who profit off idolatry. I want to do so much ministry here in Cerritos that people that profit off of sin lose money and I start a riot. That just sounds like a goal, right? I know some of you are in. Come on, Chris. This is a skill set you can get behind, right? (laughs) All right. So here we go, right? So there's this time in Ephesus where he spends three years, he leaves in handcuffs, he literally leaves arrested. While he's there, he has this ongoing relationship with other churches, like the churches that he was a part of in Galatia, and the church in Corinth. Now he writes two letters that we have in the New Testament, we call them 1st and 2nd Corinthians, this is 1st Corinthians. For those of you that are gonna get back into your community groups, you'll probably be doing 2nd Corinthians in your community groups, so it'll parallel, and we'll use both texts so you'll see some of those things. But if I were to be honest with you, these are not the first letter and second letter. It's at least the second letter and the fourth letter. Because at times, Paul mentions, when I wrote to you before in 1 Corinthians. Hey, when you wrote me back, or then I came and visited you, and then now, and he has this relationship. And what I I want you to hear is Paul has this relationship with this church. Now, he began this church, right? And I had the privilege alongside many of you to start this church about eight years ago, birthed out of another church, but we started generations in a high school just you know, seven and a half, almost eight years ago, right? And, and if I were to leave and other pastors were to be here and people came and went and there was some struggles, and, I, and I've had this with a, with a church that I pastored. Many of you guys know the folks from Oasis, like different leaders and different struggles they went to, I I kept a very personal relationship with them. And that's what Paul is doing, is writing these letters, and if you know anything about that part of the world in Greece, they're separated by the Mediterranean Sea. Now, it's not impassable, they can get there, people do visit Paul and talk to him, and Paul does go there, but it's not like down the street, right, and transportation is not what it is today. And so he has this ongoing relationship, and his heart with them is to see the church that he began and handed off in its kind of infancy, that it would become a healthy church. And so he writes to them in 1 Corinthians about 10 issues the church is having. And so I want to take 1 Corinthians, and I want to deal with each issue one at a time, likely, Uh, two of them really short, so maybe those two will buddy up. But the first issue, here's the problem, the first issue, today's issue is four chapters long. Now, we're not gonna cover it all, I promise. We'll be out of here by three o'clock, I swear. So, uh, but we're gonna pick two of the four chapters that really dive into the first issue. But today's main idea and the main idea of the book is this, and we'll put this on the screen for those of you that are note takers. And as, as Pastor Mounty said, at the end of the message, we're gonna talk about what is a takeaway, an application you have for this week. So we'll be taking notes, right? So unity and purity, every church, local church, like us, is called to live in unity and purity for, first of all, the growth and maturity of the collective body, us. And two, as a witness for Christ to the non-believing world. We're called to grow in unity, grow together, and purity, we'll call that holiness, right? We should all grow to look more and more like Jesus over time. And we do that by growing closer together, under the power of the gospel. So, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1 says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus to our, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, let's pause for a second. This is written to the church in Corinth, right? This isn't written to the pastor of the church in Corinth. This isn't written to the elder board or the deacons of the staff or the leaders, it's written to the church in Corinth, right? This was likely intended to be read on a Sunday, kind of like what we're doing, right? Where they say, hey, we got this letter from Paul, I wanna read this to you, and the, the people that it would be directed to was like this. So if you're a member of Generations Church, it would be to you, right? Now, if you're a guest here today, or a visitor, or you've been a, attending, maybe even pursuing membership, It would be applicable, right? But he's dealing with the people who are the church already, the defined kind of a category of you're the church, right? Now, if there's a problem with the church, you can't say, well, it's the first time guest's fault, right? It's the people, right? It's the people who are clearly in we're talking to. So it applies to all of us, but he's speaking directly to the church, And we're going to see that throughout these 10 issues, how Paul leans into who belongs to the church. He's going to speak to what it looks like to belong, to be a member of. He's going to look at the authority of the church, of the body of the church, right? He's going to look at a lot of these topics. We'll cover them over the next 10 weeks. So I want you to think of the church here. and I want you to think of the way we use the word. Now, let me give you an example. If I say I'm having a hard time getting my refrigerator to cool, the, the word cool, right, means, you know, what I'm asking, what I'm saying is it's, it's, I'm having a hard time lowering the temperature, getting heat out, right? Less heat is cooler or colder, right? But then if I look over at Jacob and I go, hey, man, cool shoes, right? What that really means, hey, I like your shoes, right? Has nothing to do, I mean, like Miko's got some cool kicks, right? So, I mean, that, what that means, but that doesn't mean they don't have any heat, right? That's something else, it's a slang version of that word. At best, it's a second or third definition of that word. So when you look up cool in the dictionary, in a simple dictionary, I did this on my MacBook, looked up cool, it doesn't talk about me liking his shoes. What it talks about is the absence of heat or the lowering of temperature. See, in the same way, church has a definition we use it in a way that is not intended to be used. Now, there's a few ways to use church, so the Bible uses the church, but in the New Testament, 90-something percent of the time, church means the gathered people of God that are formally identified as belonging together in a local body, right? Body, all words that Paul's gonna use in 1 Corinthians. Belonging, right? And so it's gathering, ecclesia means gathering Right, that's the Greek word for church, means gathered people. See, you're not the church, and you're not the church, and you're not the church, we are the church. You with me? When we gather, we form something called the church. And again, like we use it in broken ways, like I'm not going to church, like a building. This is the church-owned building. We're the church, right? I'm not going to church, I'm going to worship with the church. And we often wanna think that we're a part of the church meaning well, I'm the church. Well, I'm a part of the universal to the church, all people, all places, all times, past, present, future, and there is a use of that in the New Testament. That's, but it's it's when Christ gathers His church finally, ultimately, right? Well, when the New Testament uses the word church, it's talking about a local church, as we say, local church, right? Which is almost a a redundancy in terms. It's a local gathering of people who follow Jesus together in a formally identified way. And he's writing to the church of God in Corinth, specific local church, like we see to the church in Ephesus or to the churches, plural, in Galatia or to the church in Rome, right? Most letters are written to churches and Paul is expressly saying this is to the church collectively, not to the leadership of like Titus or First and Second Timothy. Those are to the leaders about the church. This is to the church, so this is to you. So I'm going to put this on the screen, the biblical definition of church. The New Testament speaks or uses, forgive the typo, church, ecclesia, as a specific group of people that gather to follow Jesus together in a formally defined way, right? You can't just show up here And, oh, I'm a a part of this. You're invited to be a part of this, and you're invited to worship with us. But there's a group of us that have finally said, hey, like, we're family, right? You're invited into that. We want you to be a part of that. But in the same way, you're also not guilty of the problems you're not formally identified as. And so he will develop that theme later. Verse 2, let's restart there. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Here's some descriptions about the church or descriptors. Those sanctified, that means that Christ's work in the gospel has made you holy. When you stand before God, you will be blameless, sinless, right? Sanctified. You will stand in Christ's righteousness Holiness. Then it says called to be saints. So not only are you made holy by the gospel, but you're called to live in a way that is holy. Now we drop the ball on that, right? We, we don't do that all the time. We do sin, we do fall short. Sometimes we don't just fall short like a mistake. Sometimes we just choose the wrong things, right? So we are holy and righteous, <clears throat> blameless eternally, but also need to live like it now, right? And so we need to be sanctified daily, even though ultimately we are. You with me? You are holy, so act like it, is what he's saying. So be holy, act holy, live holy. He says, and they're called to be together, right? They're to be a gathered together community. So being holy and being called to live holy. And the way you do that, he says, you do that together, And he says, you among all the other churches. And so what's good about this is this is not just one-off prescription for them. This is true of all churches. So this is true for all local churches. This is the calling. is the truth about local churches. Verse 3. Grace to you. I want you to pay attention to the word you here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. We'll pause there, but the word you is going to come up over and over and over again. For you English majors or Bible nerds, right, that's in the second person plural accusative. In other words, you plural. You're From the south, that's all y'all, right? Not just y'all, but all y'all, right? That, that is the plural you. Now, here's what we do different we've invented words that are not in the Bible like my personal relationship with Jesus Christ or my personal Lord and Savior. Paul is writing exactly the opposite of that, right? Now, if you've used that language, that does not mean you're not a follower of Jesus. It just means we've invented new words that redefine our relationship because we're Americans. We're very individualistic, but that's not church, right? You plural, Right? This is for you, the church, plural. These are true things. I thank God for you, plural. Right? I give thanks to God. Grace to you, all of you, plural. Because of the grace that was given to you in Christ Jesus, plural. Right? We're going to hear that as we pick up verse 6. This word, this plural, I want you to hear that throughout the rest of the text today. I went through and searched through these words. They are all plural. Until he says later, all of you, he says all of you individuals, right? It's plural, every single time, right? Verse six, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking any gift, by the way, we'll develop that later, that confirmed among you, like you've defined who you are, who's the church, you've defined who belongs there, right? Verse seven, so that you're not lacking in any gift, as you, plural, wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you, all of you, to the end, guiltless, On the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's that sanctified peace, that holiness peace. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So three times the Lord Jesus Christ, and then in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you, plural, were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus, right? And so here's what he's saying. He's he's teeing up for these 10 issues that he has with the church in Corinth, and we're going to read about how he gets those issues. They've written to him. A woman has come come to him, and some of her people have come to him, and they've been talking. He has this ongoing relationship, but before he gets into the issues, he's pointing out that Jesus is the answer, right? Repeatedly, the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace that is given to you by Jesus, jesus is going to be the outcome jesus is going to be the answer jesus is the solution if you're off track what you're missing want to take a guess jesus so he makes it very clear from the beginning this is a you plural jesus is always the answer verse 10 he says i appeal to you brothers identifying with them by the name of our lord jesus christ that you that all of you there's your there's your one singular but it's an all of you so it's plural agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So here's the first issue, one of 10, right? Their issue is division. The church in Corinth is divided, and we're gonna see that they're divided around teachers. We'll get to that in a minute. But The second part of that passage right there talks about how the gospel calls us towards unity. So let's pause there. So here is the gospel in its most simple form, and by the way, So bummed that I couldn't be with you last Sunday, for those of you that are pursuing membership, to do the class on the gospel. And I know some of the members came too and talked about what is the gospel. And so at its simplest, there's a God who created you, loves you, designed you, made you, and knows how you work, right? How you are made to be. And that way we call it just being a worshiper of God. That doesn't mean we're always singing songs. It means that everything we do is to bring glory to God, but to give worth to our creator. Right? And so that's our creator, our ontological purpose, right? That we're to bring glory to God. Problem is, sin enters into human history, right? And breaks humanity. And all of us then are born in that sin. So we're born broken, right? And so All of us sin and add to the problem, and we're born in sin, we can't escape that, and so all of us sin, and again, and we'll go back to like the message of Hosea, making us like an unfaithful bride to God, right? And the New Testament uses that too, that the church, the collective, is the bride of Christ. The local body is like a bride to Jesus, and our infidelity to him is our sin, right? And you know, in a marriage, if there's infidelity, you know, there's a division in the relationship, and and our sin separates us from God. And unfortunately, well, let me rephrase. So we're not peers, right? It's not like we can work on a program, work on a plan, like a husband and a wife. Let's try and meet in the middle, and you did this, and I did this, and we get back here. See, God's perfect, and God requires perfect obedience. So as we are sinful, There's nothing we can do to fix the relationship. But God and His love and His grace and His mercy comes to us. See, that is the gospel that God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus becomes human, becomes flesh, the eternal God becomes human, fully God and yet fully human in Christ, roughly 2,000 years ago. And that He lives the life that we were called to live, but fail and choose to fail, he died a death on a cross to pay our penalty because there's a penalty for sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's not just like physical, but eternal. So Jesus dies to pay that penalty, but the story doesn't end there. Right? As he's laid in a grave to cover our sin, he's resurrected to give us new life. So Jesus lives today, right? That's the message of the gospel that he died, but he rose again and lives. He ascends back to heaven because he is God alive on the throne, deserving of our prayers and the songs we sang this morning, and that he reigns when we say Christ Jesus, the Lord, as Paul has been repeating, Lord means running things, right? He's in charge, right? There's this, there's this, there's the governor, there's the president, there's Jesus. All up here, right? Lord means we do what he says, and there's our problem, right? That we don't. But see, his death, his resurrection is to cover our sin. That when we come to faith, when we repent, when we get baptized, when we become a part of a church, when we follow Jesus in the way that God has prescribed, we grow in that. And again, we're holy, when you're in Christ, you're made perfect in in a way, in an eternal sense, and yet you're called to live perfect, which is a growth. Sanctified and, and being sanctified, right? And so that's the gospel. We well, see, that gospel doesn't make sense to people who are not in the gospel, right? Like, well, how does a guy dying fix anything, right? Well, how does a, a poor Jewish guy who died on a cross, and you gotta understand the context, the cross was like the worst way, the most shameful way to die, like, how does that fix anything? And so there's this struggle. And what happens is humanity wants to solve problems that aren't there. So we try and insert our wisdom or our solution But here's what's unifying, and this is where we left off in this passage. You're called to unity, there's division, you're called to unity. So let me give you two unifying factors about the gospel. All of us are sinful and in need of a savior. No matter where you were born, what color you are, how rich, how poor, what your education level is, how many felonies you do or don't have, all separated from God from birth, all. So we're unified in our problem, we all have the same problem. doesn't matter what language we speak or what we look like, or if we're male or female, same problem. Here's the other unifying thing about the gospel. We all have the same solution, Jesus. That Jesus died for the nations, for the world, for all mankind. That any who come to Christ can be in Christ. The whole mystery of the gospel that's played out in a lot of the New Testament books is that Jew and Gentile, or or Jewish people and non-Jewish people, which is everybody, right, that all people belong to the same body, local church, together. They're no longer separated by ethnicity. with the exception of some language barriers, that should always be true. So the unity of the gospel is there. The biggest piece of the puzzle, my problem and the solution, unify us. In Romans 3, it says this, for there is no distinction... For all of sin, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned, we're unified in that, and we all find justification or forgiveness, it's a fancy word for forgiveness, in Christ. Back in 1 Corinthians, verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter, the disciple of Jesus, or some of you say, I follow Christ, right? So Paul left, new leaders came. In the absence of Paul, some apostles even visited, right? And so they've had different teachers, different leaders, and here's what's unique about this passage, it never really articulates a problem made by the teachers. It doesn't necessarily say, that the teachers have taught them anything false, right? It's their division over who they follow. Oh, I like Pastor John, then I like more than I like Pastor Jeff or Pastor Matt. It's like that kind of thing. Like, I'm of this group, I'm of this group. Some of them are even saying they're of Paul. And they're like, oh, we're better than that. We're of Jesus, or we're of Apollos, or we're Peter, right? They're dividing in the church over who they follow. Verse 13. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, but not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of power. So why does Paul single out baptism here? And this, again, one of the things that will come up later. See, baptism is entrance into the local church, right? You Typically, now some of you came to faith in other churches. uh, That's fine, right? But typically, people lived in one area for a lifetime. This wasn't a very mobile, global community. People grew up and lived where they grew up. People also, young men, took on their dad's trade or business, right? So they kind of stayed. So if you came to faith, you probably came to faith at that church. And so baptism was your entrance into that church. Talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? Peter preaches, the first preached gospel after the ascension of Jesus. And a bunch of people look at him and say, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, right? And you will be filled with the Holy Spirit goes on later in that passage, and it kind of plays out, and at the end of that it says that about 3,000 were baptized and added to their number that day. And what we begin to see, if we're looking for it, is they had a clear understanding of who was the church and who was not. And they baptized people into it. That they had a kind of a running role of who's in, who's out, right? That doesn't mean when they gathered for worship, when they had dinner in a house, doesn't mean that they didn't have guests or people trying to figure it out non-believers trying to ask questions. Of course they did, and we should. We should have that here. But they knew who belonged. But see, here they're saying, well, Paul baptized me, making me better than you who were baptized by somebody else. And Paul's like, I'm glad I didn't baptize a whole lot of you. Like, my job was preach the gospel. I did baptize some. He's not downplaying baptism at all. What he's saying is, I'm glad I didn't baptize a whole bunch of you so that a whole bunch of you aren't using my name like that. Like don't use me to divide you guys. You're the ones that are supposed to be unified. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Now, he said, I came to preach the gospel to you, but not with eloquent words, right? And he's expanding on that. So after the baptism, he's expanding on that. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart." So again, the folly of the cross, or the stumbling block of the cross, or the hang-up that people had, is how does some dude die on a, on a cross? How does that fix anything? See, if you're not in the gospel, it makes no sense. You know, like, it's counterintuitive. Like, it's the most shameful death, and it's a death. See, the Jews were waiting for a military hero to come in and conquer Caesar and kick Rome out, And the Greeks, or the Greek culture people, the the Greco-Roman culture, they liked eloquent speakers. They liked people who came in with convincing arguments. You're like, oh, they're so smart. We'll follow them and give them money. They're called sophists. So to the Jews in this church, they're struggling with the folly of how does this Jewish guy dying, not meeting our expectations, how does that fix anything? And to the Greek Greco-Roman culture over here, they're like well Paul really didn't have like big grand arguments. He was fairly simple, right? And that's what he's saying. Like I just came with the power of the gospel. I'm not trying to fix it man's way. I'm not trying to dress up the gospel. I'm trying to stay true to the gospel. Modern day version of that. If you go to a church and you hear the gospel, oftentimes what you will hear is if you believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again, and you say this prayer, you'll go to heaven. Do you see the twist? We're now marketing heaven to you with this easy believism of saying a prayer that doesn't exist in scripture, by the way. That's the bad thing, just that's true, right? Forgiven heaven. But see, most of the gospel that's shared in the New Testament is about a Jesus who's alive and calls us to obey today. In fact, with the repeated commands, you're gonna be persecuted, you're gonna suffer, you're gonna do all kinds of tribulations, right? All these things. Like, it'll probably get worse before it gets better if you're doing it right. Yes, heaven, yes, forgiveness, there's a lot of space in the middle. Today we try and market it, we try and make it fancy and cleaner. We have crosses that aren't shameful, they're beautiful. There's nothing wrong with a cross, that's probably the most recognized symbol of Christianity. But we've, we've tried to sanitize the gospel and market it to people. That's why the church is so impotent today in culture. Verse 20, so where's the one who is wise, Paul says? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? He's all talking about the sophists here. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of which we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. He says, Listen, wisdom won't get you there. In fact, man's wisdom got him in sin, to be honest, right? Like a good argument argued Adam and Eve into sin. And the sophists were known for their good their eloquent speech, their rhetoric. And there's solid arguments they could make, like in a debate, and there's nothing wrong with debates. But that's not how we pass the gospel on. And we're not trying to be flashy over here and dress everything up. I was thinking of this earlier as we were sitting in worship, and a guy sent me a text. A guy I kind of know. I know him enough to where he has my phone number, but he texted me, which doesn't mean a lot, right? In fact, I don't actually know how he got my phone number, but... he said, hey, I'm looking for a worship position. I said, cool, and I asked him a question about his philosophy of worship, which he just, answered was horrible, but uh, God bless him, he loves Jesus, bad answer. He sent me a link to a video, and I think I played it for Alex, and we were talking about it, and so he's leading worship, and everybody on stage is jumping around and doing all kind of stuff, and I'm, I'm so distracted by the people, I deleted the whole thing. I'm like, yeah, I'll let you know, and, and I just was trying to be nice. He pursued the conversation, so I told him later. But I was like, man, I would not recommend you to anybody. Like, you're the show. If you walk into a church and it looks more like a live concert, walk into another church, right? Like the folks here should disappear. I should not be what's, what matters. That's what Paul's saying. I'm not trying to make this thing flashy. I'm not trying to make it cool. I'm not trying to make it more palatable for you. I'm not, to, I'm not trying to shine it up. I'm trying to give you the message from God, the whole message of the cross. And people struggle with that like, how somebody dying helped me. How somebody 2,000 years ago fix my issue, right? He's saying it, so wisdom says something different. The message of the gospel to those who believe is everything. Like we say this often here at generations, we never leave the gospel. The gospel is the very thing that introduces us to Jesus. It's it's the very thing in which we stand daily as we try to live as saints, live in that sanctification. And it's the very gospel we trust in that when we stand before God in eternity, that he will see Christ and not my worst decisions. We never leave the gospel. We don't get the gospel over here to meet Jesus and then move on to hardworking something else over here. We don't do that. We never leave the gospel. And Paul says, yeah, I get it. Some people think that's silly. It's everything to us. Verse 23, it says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or silliness to the Gentiles. Verse 24, but those who are called will choose in Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When we hear Paul say, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, do we believe it? That's a real question. Do we believe it? Okay, hold on to that answer. Do we, do we truly believe that what God says is a better answer than what I think is right? Does that also include how we are to live inside of the gospel? So that would include how we are to live as a church, Uh, Notice the answers got quieter. (laughs) Thank you, though. So, right? See, once we get to this point, we start thinking, no, I've got it down. See, we don't have the same struggle. Now, I will say this. We don't publish who's preaching each week because at times we have had people ask who's preaching and they show up based on whether they like that or not. That should never happen, right? I don't care who's preaching. They're preaching God's word. If you show up and they're not preaching God's word, tell me that'll be the last time, right? They're preaching God's word. We all need to hear it. When I'm here and other people are preaching, I'm here. I'm taking notes. I'm learning. It doesn't matter who delivers the message as long as it's God's word. But we have other issues. We have other influences. We have other voices that speak and shape what we do as a church. We'll get to that in just a minute. But we've got to remember the answer. God's wisdom is better than ours. And God's answer, when it doesn't necessarily make sense, is still right and we're wrong. Does that make sense? All right, I'm gonna hold you to that, both of you that said yes, all right. (laughs) Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish of the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You added nothing to your salvation. You weren't the smartest guy in the room when the gospel was presented, right? You weren't just the most faith-filled, right? You add nothing. Jesus saves, right? And, and that's what he's saying. You were not like some... Bunch of reputable people. We don't have a bunch of people that are blue check marks in here for the rest of you. Popular is another word. Right? There's some pretty simple people like the church in Corinth, right? Corinth, by the way, was a very metropolitan area. It was like Long Beach, and it was filled with a lot of the problems that Long Beach has. It was like San Francisco. Those are the two cities that Bible scholars compare the church in Corinth or the city of Corinth to, right? That area that has a lot of shipping and trade routes, a lot of money flows through there, right? And with that comes a lot of struggles. He's saying, listen, you were not all that when Christ decided to use you, to call you, to save you, right? And that's that's like me. For those of you who know my background, right, with jail and drugs and crime and gangs and prison and all that, I'm the least likely person to be pastoring a very multi-ethnic church in the, in the white collar city of Cerritos, right? Like and, and especially if you knew some of those the things that come with all that, some of the baggage with all that, this is funny, right? It's funny that would God say, Well, let's do this, right? But he'll use the foolish things, the weak, the broken, so that he looks good. See, if I just had the pedigree, then we'd think, Oh, you know what? I mean, that guy worked hard. Maybe I work hard, but that's not the point. Nobody looks at me and like, oh, I totally get it. You're like, God, (laughs) right? Gospel, that's the change. And that's what he's saying. It's not about you. And if it were about you, you would boast, or you would boast before God, or you would say, like, you added something. He said, you add nothing. He says, you were pretty small and weak and not of noble birth when Christ called you. Don't lose sight of that. That's good. That makes God famous instead of you verse 30, he says this, but because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm going to put this on the screen really quick. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Righteousness, the holiness of Jesus applied to us through the gospel. Sanctification, the likeness of Christ being applied to us, an ongoing process through the gospel. Redemption, the worthiness of Christ applied to us through the gospel different terms around the gospel of Christ's best decisions being applied to us and erasing our dumbest and most evil decisions. 1 Corinthians 2, we're going to move really quickly through this. Verse 1, and when I came to you brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I didn't come like the sophists of the day with these polished arguments. In fact, when Paul goes into Corinth, he goes like he naturally does into the synagogues. He's a Jewish guy, so he goes to Jewish people, right? It's kind of the equivalent, if you show up in Cerritos... Now, I don't know how many ch- churches in Cerritos, but I know many of them are in different languages, Korean churches, Spanish-speaking churches, whatever. Like, if I just landed here and want to go to church on a Sunday, I'd try and pick something in my own language, right? So I can understand if that's possible. Now, if I'm in another country, maybe that's not possible. But he goes into a foreign country, and he, he finds people that at least can relate to him and talk to him. So he goes there and completely bombs, does not see anyone come to faith. His message has nothing. And it's a pretty polished message because he's a pretty educated Jew. He gets so mad. He's like, I'm done with you. I'm just throwing the towel in on everybody Jewish. And I'm going to go talk to the non-Jewish people. He walks outside. And as soon as he starts to talk, people begin to come to faith. But he's now speaking in a different culture outside of his wheelhouse. And he says, listen, I just didn't, I was not a polished guy. And I was kinda of coming in weakness and some fragileness, like I just struck out and I'm half shocked that any of you listen to me. But the power, he says, is the power of the gospel, right? So not the sophists of the day, not the hip, cool churches of today. The simple gospel-centered churches. So let's skip down to verse 16 of that chapter at the end. For who has understood the mind of the Lord is so to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So Paul is developing this idea, hey, you're divided, and I I need to see you unified in Christ. And what's dividing you is each of you are coming and bringing kind of earthly ways of doing things. Following human leaders is an earthly thing, not a spiritual thing. And so what he's saying to the church is, listen, the gospel is what builds us. God is what tells us what we're to do. God is the one who defines how we're to live together as a church, and what you're doing is you're trying to use the wisdom, prevailing wisdom, quote-unquote wisdom, of the day. You're not listening to God. You're using human solutions, and here's what's happened. Now you're all divided, and you're trying to follow different people. This guy said this. This guy said this. He says, you even threw my name in there. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. This is when he went there the first time. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, you're still in the flesh. So what he's saying is, like an infant, I fed you milk. Couldn't give you meat, you didn't have teeth, right? You weren't ready for that, you couldn't, you couldn't take that. He says, but here's the problem, and this church is about three years old. He said, here's the problem, you're not ready for it now. And, and here's your immaturity, here's your infancy, is that you're so divided. You're not a church, you're super divided. So the second half of verse three, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Right, so he's contrasting God's way with human ways. God's ways is unity, human ways is divided. Verse five, so uh, for verse 4, when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Paul says this neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth, right? It's not about the guy, the man or the woman or the child. It's not about them, it's it's about God. In this case, it's not about the men who are your pastors, who are those speakers, who are those apostles who have come to visit you. He says it's only about God. God uses them as he chooses, so I had to ask, like, what are the things that get in the way or influence us today in the church that cause us to be divided from one another? See, it's not like I started the church, handed off, and the next leader, and handed off, there's another leader. Now, I've done that. I passed pastored a church about 100 miles from here, and I handed off to, many of you know Pastor Vinny. And then after that, he handed off to a guy named Pastor Mike, and, and it just, it kind of kept going, Right? But then the divisions in the church, and there was a lot of the same idea, like, well, Jeff did this, well, Vinny did this, and Mike's like, but I'm not either one of them. Jesus says this, right? And I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying it's true, right? That people will divide over that. But see, we don't have that. Just functionally, about seven and a half, almost eight years ago, I started generations with a handful of you. With, with, most of you are newer than that. But we don't have that kind of thing. But we do, like I said earlier, we do have voices that shape how we are a church. Voices, teachers, if you will, that shape how we do things. Let me give you the most common teacher that shapes how we do things wrongly. Well, I think this. Oh, and he's got a twin brother. Oh, I feel this. Those two things shape how churches do things more than anything else I think today in our culture. How do we, how do we market the God? How do we, we don't want to be offensive. Like, how do we do this? Or how do we do this? Or, uh, I think this is a good, and I, and I gotta tell you, I've had more conversations, countless conversations, of people who will come in, well, I, you know, I don't like this decision by the church or whatever. Okay, why? Well, I think this. Okay, based on what? Well, just, I mean like, I think this should be, or I feel this way, you know, I can count on one hand how many times people have come in and said, hey, scripture says this, and understand how that reconciles what we're doing. It's always, I think, or I feel, and when you ask, well, I don't know, and then there's the excuse, well, you know more Bible than I do. Learn the Bible, I don't know, that's like my fault, right? Right, well, I'll I'll dumb it down, I don't know, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Well, Scripture says this should be our conversation. And it's happened. People have come to me with hard conversations. Hey, this, where I was doing something wrong. Or hey, I read this, and we just had a recent conversation. I read this, and I'm not sure how this impacts this. And and we talk through it, right? I always tell people, listen, I don't have an issue with that. Scripture's strong enough to handle our conversations. But your thinking and your feeling, my thinking and my feeling, will mislead us every time. Those are the two teachers of our culture that seem to be the loudest in church, right? We talked about a biblical shift to family-integrated worship. We taught through some of that. We've covered that, we knew the transition was hard. It was new. And we said scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture calls us to this, and zero that says, let's put them in another room. Fair it doesn't mean there can't be kids' classes. It doesn't mean we can't do different things. It just means that there is a plan. We want to lean into the plan. I got a lot of my thinks, and I got a lot of my feels. I got zero Bible. Does that make sense? Those are the teachers that we end up submitting to. And I, and I, I say this all the time. I'll give you two others. American culture and American church culture. And we are fighting a war on two fronts. It's Western American culture, which nobody who assesses, or almost nobody who assesses the modern American church says it's doing well. An American church culture, excuse me, American culture, highly politicized, highly divided. If you disagree with me, you hate something, right? And I'm talking about both sides, just the record, nobody's off the hook. An American church culture, which has been shaped by what we think or feel for so long, it's got such historic roots that we, whenever we lean into Scripture, are fighting this battle on both sides. I just want you to think of those as teachers in the church, as if they were standing up here like, I think this, well, I think that. Like, if you ever hear those words, throw something. Not for real. Later, maybe. But unless we can see it in Scripture, it's just an idea. And it should not define what we do. Verse 9 says this, for we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. Now I'm gonna give you a homework assignment just based on time. Let me ask you a question. So there's a, a flower planted here, maybe a tree over there in La Palma, some weeds growing up in Norwalk, who knows, whatever. Is that a field? I didn't mean, let's flip that. Some beautiful roses there, weeds here. Let's do that. Just I'm not knocking Norwalk, all right? Does that make a field? No. You put all this stuff together, you have a field, right? Now the other reference is easier for me and that's the one that Paul expands on, a building. See, a door does not make a building, right? Stained glass does not make a building, right? And and ground, like you put it all together. And here's what he said, your God's field, your God's building, right? He says, according to the grace of God given to me, verse 10, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation as someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Foundation, gospel. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. The day, the end, the day, the day of the Lord. Because it will be revealed by fire, by judgment. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. And the work is that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. It's a metaphor. That means there's an image, a teaching behind it, and some details to tie them together, right? And what he's saying is, we, the church, Generations Family Church, are like a building. Being built together with the foundation is the gospel. And when we, the church, build the church, remember this letter is written to a collective plural you, we the church, build the church, how we build it will be judged eventually. Now I I find myself to be more responsible for that judgment, right? Scripture teaches it over and over again, don't presume to be a teacher too quickly because you'll be held to a higher standard. What I want you to hear, y'all are in it with me, right? Three of you at least agree. All right, good. So <laughs> then we're accountable for what we do here. There's about 50 of you that are formerly members. There's about 30 of you that are pursuing membership out of whatever last Sunday was, out of 130, 100, 200 people to call this church home. Those that are bought in, we're responsible. That's why you have a voice. That's why we meet. That's why we talk about it. Because ultimately we're responsible to follow the Bible, not what I think, not what I feel, not what they do, not what I think we voted on, What the scripture says. And it will be judged for that. It will be judged for the work that we do here. He said, verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You again, plural. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you, plural, are that temple. Not you the individual, you plural. Right? You are are that. Here's a note for you, the church is God's dwelling place. The gathered people of God committed to one another as a local church is what Paul defines as God's temple where the spirit dwells. We're not only better together, but God's spirit dwells uniquely with us when we gather. That we are something unique called the church when we gather, ecclesia, the word means gathering. That's the word we translate to church. I'll close with this, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. 1 Corinthians is going to challenge them in 10 ways how they're not being a biblical church. The first one is in their division and in their human solutions. I don't find us to be super divided here. But we are equally, like any other church, plagued by what I think and what I feel. What that church does, what we think would work in America, where we need to be bound to scripture. So here's your homework. I want you to read through chapters one through four, and I want you to see the human spiritual, if you will, spiritual meaning following the power of the spirit in you. I want you to read through that and just ask yourself, what does that say? because that's gonna set us up for the next nine issues that he presents. So what are some ways we can apply this to our lives as you get ready for your takeaway? So hear me, I, I just can, I'm gonna confess, I get tired of fighting sometimes for scriptural changes because it's hard. And I need to remember that we're accountable for how we build this thing together. And that when we, when we get tired, get frustrated, That it's just a process. And that the Apostle Paul wasn't doing any better And that we stay the course. Mature believers, you need to remember to point us all back to Scripture when culture or what we think or feel crowds out what God says. But in order to do that, you must be engaged with those who are younger. Our older folks who know more must be engaged with those who are younger or we can't learn from you. New believers, if you're brand new to the faith or young or immature in your faith, what you think or feel, what culture around us says is often contrary to the gospel. You must learn to trust in what God teaches, even when it contradicts what you think or feel. Nonbelievers, the gospel is about a living Jesus. And when you surrender your life to the gospel, you become a part of a local church. And that we're in this thing together, we become a family of families and we grow together. Parents and kids, every pursuit and affliction is going to pull us away from a local church. We need to prioritize in our families time in the local church. And we need to teach our kids how that family is of most and greatest value. Let's take three minutes. Find someone around you. What's your takeaway? What's something you can apply to your life this week? Go. I will be back in less than three minutes.